Hello and welcome to Shoulder Charge. On the show this week, matters were made worse for Wakefield last night after they lost 46-16 to Wigan. Also, Corey Aston moves to London. I've got an interview with Mark Aston about his son's rise. And can anybody stop St Helens? There's all that and more on Shoulder Charge. So, let's kick off with last night's action. It was another win for Wigan after they brushed past Wakefield, beating them 46-16, as I've just referred to. It's now six wins out of the last seven for Wigan, and they bounced straight back just after losing to St Helens last week. And last night, it was so easy for Wigan, you know, they pretty much had the game done and dusted by half-time. And what impressed me about Wigan was the fact that Adrian Lamb put in a couple of youngsters in the side. And the whole 13, to be honest, was... Full of youth and they had speed in abundance. For Wigan, it, it worked like a treat. And on the other end of the pitch, you had the Fred Burr, ageing Wakefield side with David Fafita not fully fit, hobbling about on the field. And I thought it was just a complete mismatch, to be honest. And Wigan ran riot, really. And going into the game, Wakefield really needed a good first 20 minutes to get themselves a chance of winning them two points because if Wigan had a good start, which they did, you know, they they didn't have a chance, did they? It couldn't have got any worse for Wakefield in that first half. Wigan had the first try from the first set of six and it were really threadbare stuff from Chris Chester's men. And Chris Chester, by the way, before the game, he said he was fairly confident of the win. And that's worrying for me because they're obviously showing positive signs off the field for the coach to be confident, but they got demolished. And I worry that they may be running out of ideas, and there's a tough period coming up for them because they've got a few injuries towards the end of the season, but they've got to get moving soon because they were in real danger of going down after seeing that first-half performance. And for Wakefield, it's two wins in the last ten. And at the moment, they're still two wins ahead of London in bottom place. And they've got a better points difference than the relegation rivals. But that's not going to last if they continue to ship points like they've had in recent weeks. And with London facing a majorly weakened Saints hell inside on Sunday, which I'll talk about later on, there could just be one win off being bottom Wakefield if London win. And in that first half, looking at Wakefield, they were really sluggish. You know, they never got a touch on Liam Farrell for the first try, and it just got worse from there. For the second try, there were three to four Wakefield defenders trying, scrambling to stop Zach Hardake crossing the try line. But he was undeterred, and the Wakefield men just had no chance. And it was the third try that really showed the poorness in the side for me, because it was a good fast-paced run from George Williams, who were carrying the ball cross-field, but the Wakefield defence, they were just clueless as to what were going on. And it were Williams who were looking for somebody to offload the ball to. And when he did pass the ball, there were no dummy. There were no elaborate trickery. It was just a simple pass of the ball to his right-hand side. And he could see Willie Isa coming from the side, making a run. But the man who didn't see Willie Isa was Jacob Miller. He was too concerned what Williams were doing with the ball. And I've already spoke about Wigan's alertness. And by the time Jacob Miller in the Wakefield defence had spotted it, it was too late. Willie Isa was already through to score. I thought he had a particularly good game. 
he weren't just on the mark when he were going forward, but also when Wakefield were advancing and on the rare occasions that it actually happened in the first half, he were first to every pass and did a real good job in preventing Wigan from making metres. Danny Brough, though, I thought he had a, a game to forget. I said a while back he was not the player he once was, and I think he's really becoming quite error-prone recently. And it didn't look good for him when Shorrocks broke through the defence and all that it took for Danny Brough to fall flat on his ass was just a little turn to the right and they were through and they got another try. And here's the stat fire. Wigan, in that first half, made over 100 tackles and only one of those tackles did they actually miss. For Wakefield, it were 13 missed tackles. But, to the credit... Wakefield showed some positives in that second half and they didn't let Wigan have it all their way. They had a couple of good kicks from Jacob Miller who were toned for his earlier error and then two tries from Ryan Hampshire who gave them something to take into the next games. And they did show some fight. You could see it. You could see that it hurt and, and they did show that they cared but it was too little too late for them. In the next few weeks for Wakefield it's not going to get easier. The next three Super League matches are against St Helens, Hull FC and then it's another relegation battle with Hull KR. So they're going to have to pull something out of the bag to pick up some points from those. And the game itself were very similar to the week before where Hull FC dominated the first half but then in the second they allowed the opposition to creep back into it. Although I thought Wigan handled the second half response a lot better than Hull FC actually did with London. They didn't completely implode like Hull and put the feet up. They had the energy and the firepower to add another 12 points to the score, even if Wakefield did score 16. So, at the moment, while you may argue Hull have the more fearsome attack than Wigan, overall, it's Wigan who look the more rounded and the more complete side. And I think that puts them in a better position when it comes to the playoffs and the grand final. But I still think the miles behind St Helens, which showed the week before. The worry I've got for Wakefield is, when you look at the try scorers, where are the points coming from? Because for the relegation rivals with Huddersfield, they've got Jermaine McGilvery, who's had 14 tries. Then they've got Darnell McIntosh on 11. London, they've got Reese Williams and Jordan Abdul. They've had 22 tries between them. With Leeds, they've got Comrade Hurrell and Ash Handley, who have 25 tries between them. Wakefield, they've got David Fafita, the top try scorer, on eight. And despite having a good few moments in that game, he's certainly carrying an injury and he's not fully fit. And then behind him is Ben Jones Bishop on seven tries. But I don't think he scored a try for about a month now. So, they're really struggling for points at the moment. And they don't really have that one player who they can bank on to get the points week in, week out. Perhaps Ryan Hampshire can be that man. He were good last night, scored a few recently. But I don't know. What I do know is something's got to change. Otherwise, they're in serious trouble. Now then, eyebrows were raised when it emerged in the press that St Helens were going to rest virtually the whole first team against London this Sunday. Justin Holbrook, the coach, told the St. Helens star that they were looking to rest 9 or 10 players. 
Saints, of course, they've got the Challenge Cup semi-final coming up against the Championship side, Halifax, the week after. Halifax probably won't be happy about this, you know. They were probably hoping Saints would put out a weaker side against them and focus on the London game. And Justin Holbrook justified his decision, saying it was the right time to rest his players because they were carrying bumps and bruises. So, of course, this hands a fantastic opportunity to London now because, let's not forget, just over a month ago, London had a shot win against Saints after they rested just four players and now they're resting ten. So, London will be rubbing their hands at this because... Since the three wins on the spin, they've lost three on the bounce as well. And they're in real danger of now being cut adrift at the bottom. I think they they might be just one win off whole KR, but apart from that, it's two wins ahead. So they've got to start winning now because whole KR are getting the wins, but London, they keep losing, despite showing good performances. And I did think they'd probably rest a few for London, but I didn't expect 9 or 10. I thought probably a few at London and then probably a few more in the Halifax match. And Holbrook has probably said it'll be seen as disrespectful, but I don't think London will care about that. And I suspect the sides around them aren't happy, but them teams are in a position because of themselves, not because St Helens have rested players. So we probably won't see players like Tommy Makinson, Kevin Nagaima, Lachlan Coote, etc. They probably won't feature. So it's a good opportunity for Saints to see what they've got in the reserves and give the give the other guys a chance of breaking into the starting 13. But I think, for me, you've got to make London favourites now because they've been impressive in the second half performances in recent weeks against topper sides. And now, I think they've got a real good attitude about them. So... All this is going to do is throw another spanner in the works of the relegation battle and staying on London Broncos. They've announced Corey Aston, currently at Castleford, is to join the London Broncos for the 2020 season. So, this brings me on to an interview I did back in May with Mark Aston. It was at a time when his son had just broke into the first team at Castleford, despite being there for a while and not really getting an opportunity. And it was amidst Castleford's sort of injury crisis. And in those opening games, he impressed going a few tries. So I started off by asking Mark how Corey got his love for rugby league. And how that he developed into a player he is today. Was it always your intention to get him playing the game professionally? Oh, no, not really. I mean, obviously, um, he started in Sheffield at Hillsborough. Sheffield Hillsborough Hawks. Uh, loved it, obviously. Grew up watching me play and, and just loved the game. And, and bizarrely, who spent a lot of time playing imaginary rugby on himself, you know, um, and, and, and kicking ball and passing ball and having a game against uh, opposition that weren't there. So it was, you know, he was just always destined to, to play rugby. He enjoyed his football, he played football, he, he, he played all sports, enjoyed football, but at that time he had to pick at a, a relatively young age which way he wanted to go, and again, it, it was all down to him and his decision, so he, mm-hmm. uh, he picked rugby and, and, and went on and uh, enjoyed his time down at Hillsborough Hawks, um, 
Yeah, I, I always remember him um, as, as him, him and Greg Burns, who obviously is playing first team with us now, uh, playing at, down at Hillsborough Oaks, and they were two of the, the best kids I'd seen for a long, long time. But small, yeah. but small, and I remember the game when it got, they got a little bit older and played against a team called Sydney at Halifax, and uh, it were like boys and men. And I think it was under 15s at that time, and they lost a little bit of confidence, both of them. Um, because of the size, they hadn't matured as much as the others, and and you know there were always going to be a question mark: would they come through it? Well, both of them has come through it. Great, come through it playing with with us, um, and God has come through it obviously playing with us through our scholarship into our academy. Played uh, the same path with, with Greg. Played first team, played hundred and odd first team games, uh, and then you know got sniffed out and. And got taken to, to Leeds Rhinos, which is, you know, everybody's dream. I mean, Leeds had a big club, and um, he, he decided he wanted to go there, be full time there. Didn't quite work out for him. Ended up at Cass, and uh, you know, he's had a tough two couple of years. At the first year at Leeds, the second year when he was at Cass, he didn't get any games, uh, and you know, by perseverance and, and belief and, and 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 the world of want. He found a way to, to, to get where he wanted to be because his objective and his, his goal was uh, to become a Super League player. When he was younger, did you know or think that he'd be doing what he's doing now? I thought he got a chance, you know. I think that, you know, the genes help him. He's, you know, his, his mum was a gymnast and obviously I was a rugby player. So, um, you know, he'd watched the game from a very young age, you know. He'd watched the game, understood the game, and asked me questions that, you know, when we were watching games, he'd ask me questions. I'd say, what do you think? And throw it back out to him because, you know, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? So we were always questioning why, what pitch. So he watched it intently. Uh, and, uh, you know, his, his, his dream was to, to become, so he threw everything at it. And, you know, sometimes when you throw everything in, and you've got a bit of skill and you've got a bit of a mentality that, and an attitude to to become the best you can be. Then sometimes you achieve it, and uh, I'm delighted for him. But yeah, I thought that at a young age, I thought he got a, a massive amount of uh, potential. But you know, you've just got to find your way, your own different way to get where you want to get. Do you think having you as a dad has made it easier or harder or a bit of both? <laughs> I think a bit of both. You know, I, I you know, obviously when when he was a kid, I just wanted him to play and enjoy. It wasn't about putting pressure on him because. You know, you shouldn't do as kids. When do kids take the, the knowledge in? When do they take the information in? When, when are they coachable? And I think, you know, we, we're, we're obsessed at football, we're, with every sport, getting kids in it. Look, let's, let them enjoy it. Let them enjoy sport, any sport, for as long as they can. And when they choose, when they, when they choose, choose the sport, then let's give them the knowledge and the education. And, you know, he... Um, he always had potential. He had chances to go to football as as, as a young kid, but you know he, he didn't want that. He he wanted um, he wanted rugby league. Uh, his performances at Castleford make you wonder why it's taken so long for him to get in the first team. Uh, do you think it's been overdue? Yeah, hundred percent. You know we develop rugby league players at Sheffield Eagles, and uh, to develop them you've got to play them. And I think it's a little bit harder. They are, you go up the ladder, but they should still have the same principles. I was talking about people coming in the first year as a, as a, as a junior player, if you like. You know, you've got to be able to give them a taste of what it's like to play first team. 
And we look at the, the scale of zero to five games in that first year, the second year, five to ten games, and obviously uh, after that, ten plus, and they should be ready by the fourth year. So, you know, he's had a couple of years where he had not a game in Super League, and it's took it until right now to, to, to get some shots. So, yeah, it's disappointing. Um, what it does is it gives you a little bit more resolve. You know, the doubters are out there, but you've got to show them. And, and I'm delighted that he, he has, he's stuck at it. Because a lot of people could have potentially walked away and thought, ah, I'm not going to get a chance, or come back to Championship. But he, he's only in there. Uh, I think I think he could have had an opportunity earlier. As I say, we're here to develop rugby league players, and you've got to pick. You've got to pick the games. You've got to manage them, and you've got to know when you can, when you when you can, and when and when not to uh, play. All he can do is, is, is do what, he, what he's doing is score tries, kick well, tackle well, and 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 for, make it very difficult for him to be left out of the team. And, and that's what you've got to do as a young, as a young developing player. You've got to make it difficult, and then coaches have got to manage him when they see him just come off the edge a little bit, and then that's the time to give him a rest and, and give him an opportunity to sit back and enjoy it. But, you know, I think he's shown uh, that he can handle Super League, and, and I think that that's important to him mentally, uh, and now he's just got to build the confidence in, in around him. I, I think that's coming. The players are starting to respond to him, and... Uh, you know, he's enjoying himself, which is, again, why we play the, the great game of rugby. And watching the match last Friday night, and even though Hull were winning and were going to win, he was still there getting the try, go, going through the defence, getting the try. And do you think that being out on the sidelines for so long, that that resilience to keep going has helped him in that game in particular? I think, I think it helps him all through life. But, uh, you know, Corey's always had the knack of scoring tries. Uh, you know that was a special try that he did last week, 40 metres out, and uh, you know decided to back himself and and use his pace to get round him, and he's done that on a number of cases because he always pops up at the right area. He's got a bit of anticipation and he wants to score. And when you're hungry to score points, then chances are you can, you can do it. You know, so I think yeah, I think the resolve he's got in him, the resilience, has stood him in good stead in in in, in every walk alive and, and particularly in rugby but you know he wants to score he wants his name on the on the on the scorecard if you like what does he have to do to maintain his status as a super league player oh, just keep his head down keep working hard because how you get there is by working hard and when you get there that's the challenge the, the challenge is to stay there so um that's you know his standards are set if he starts dropping under his standards then Obviously, you know, people are going to leave him out, so he's just got to keep his standards up. And you know what? He's going to train hard. He's going to do the things that they want from him. He's, he's going to watch his videos. He's going to analyse his game. He's going to go out and practice. He's going to do all them things because that's what he does, you know? Uh, and nobody can ever knock him for that. So what he needs to do now is just, you know, get the confidence, get the belief and, and, and make a name for himself. Uh, presumably watching his debut match against Breakfield when he got a try what were your emotions watching it? I'm a bit of a soft ass to be fair you know what I mean I, I get a bit of a, a lump in the throat um, because I know I know how uh, <coughs> how much he wanted it and you know he probably doubted himself for the last couple of years so to score the try is special but to make his debut is, is the thing that he wanted so delighted for him delighted for him he's a good kid uh, and he you know he works hard and 
he's got a good attitude and um, you know he's respectful so you know it was it was emotional people say I said it to you but <laughs> nobody found it nobody found it if I did <laughs> Is he uh, the type of player he would have been banging on the coach's door to be given a chance, or would he be just keeping his head down in training and trying to impress on the on the yeah, field? Yeah, you know, he, he hasn't, uh, or he didn't, he probably has now. Uh, he had his mum's nature, <laughs> which is nice and mellow, whereas I'm a bit feisty and a bit fiery. Uh, but I think he's learnt over the last year or so that he's got to stand up for himself, he's got to ask the questions and... People don't, don't particularly like it. I love it. I love when people challenge you. Absolutely love it. They'll ask questions. They want to know what they've got to do and, and all that. That shows an intent. And, and, and I love players like that. So, you know, yeah, I think he, he, you know, he's, he's now starting to believe in himself. I think he will ask questions. Uh, I think he'll become the, the, the leader of the pack, if you like, and, and telling him what he wants. And, He'll just grow and grow and grow now. He just needs to be given more time uh, and more opportunities. Moving on, last week on the podcast, I spoke in depth about the playoff running in the Championship. So this week, I thought I'd focus on the Super League playoffs and who will reach the Grand Final. Super League, much like the Championship this year, arguably seven teams vying for the spot in the top five. Um, it's a testament to Super League's competitiveness this year that there's so many sides competing to be in the grand final and the playoffs. And it's probably the most ever competitive Super League season. I keep hearing that anyone can beat anyone. Hull KR, whilst they're not in the uh, running for the playoffs, they've not even won one game in a row in Super League this year. I think they've won and lost each game that they've had so whilst they're down at the bottom it does show how mad this year has been for consistency or lack of the middle of the table is so compact you know one win seems to put you as a top five contender one loss it puts you right back into the relegation scrap and outside of St Helens in first who are sort of walking it Warrington they've lost seven times Hull have lost nine times Catalans have lost 10, Wigan have lost 11, and I don't think there's been that many times when the current top five have been so inconsistent and have lost that amount of games between them. And whilst it is competitive, it is going to be a complete Saints walkover for the league leaders' shield. And we have seen this before in other seasons, and they've still not actually gone and won that grand final despite a dominance year. So, it's not quite a far gone conclusion that Saints will get the grand final, but I think now this year is different. I think this year they've got more than ever before, and I think they've got the best chance. And this year, I think it's a good job there's an element of jeopardy with the grand final because, you know, the real winners are found in the playoffs, but without that, it wouldn't have to be as exciting because. Never before has Super League been more competitive, but I don't think never before has it ever been so dominant either. Yeah, there's other teams who have won it by 10 points. I think Castleford in 2017 did, but they lost five times. Saints have lost twice this time. And if you go off their average wins and losses over the 22 games they've played, they'll only pick up another loss on average. So they were on course to only lose three times in 29 games and win by 
at least 10 plus points. But the Castleford team in 2017, yeah, they lost five times, but they were still by far the better side overall. But they didn't win the grand final. So it does show the teams are not infallible. And granted, yeah, it's true. But in that season, yeah, they did lose to sides such as Hull and St Helens. St Helens beat them in twice in the regular season and in the Super 8s. In that season, there were signs that there were weaknesses. You know, they were losing to playoff rivals. But this year, you can't really say that about St Helens. So far, they've, they've come as close to being infallible as humanly possible. They've lost just once to a side in the playoffs. That were Catalans. But since then, they've had the revenge. Of the playoff contenders, they've beat Wigan three times. They've beat Warrington twice, Salford twice, Hull twice, and Castleford twice. That's not just dominance, that's blowing everybody out of the water. Some have said, Saints are not guaranteed winners in that grand final. And they're not, but they're as good as they can be, aren't they? Who's really going to back against St Helens? You know... They're the only side who has proven they can do it in the big games this year. And I think the final stages of the Challenge Cup will be very interesting because it'll be a good indicator for Saints as to whether they can show it. Because they've showed it against the rivals, but can they show it on the big stage? Can they show it in a neutral ground? Can they show it when it actually matters? And if they do bottle that Challenge Cup, it does open their door for anyone to win it, but... I think that door at the moment, it's only slightly ajar. And Saints, taking into the account of the results already, I don't think I've seen a more complete Super League side because I think they've got everything. One year where you can look back and say that was a similar team to St Helens who were so dominant, lost hardly any. So back in 2004, Leeds topped the league, losing just three times and they had a nine-point advantage in the side to second so even then I reckon Saints will do better than that to be honest I reckon they'll have more than a nine point advantage and in that year Leeds won the grand final as well so to me I do think St Helens are going to win every competition I do think they've got the best chance of getting this treble this year and in Super League it's not always in fact it's usually not the best side overall that wins it. But surely this year it is going to be. I think for a challenger to win, they've got to show they can win them big games. Hull may go and win the Challenge Cup. If they do, you know, I could see them in with a chance. But they've gone from one extreme to another in the space of two games. And more recently, it's been in the space of two halves. So nobody at the moment is looking up to the job to beat St Helens. And I'd only start to worry for Saints if they got a lot of injuries. And there's uncertainties with Justin Holbrook's future at the moment. He looks like he could be off to coach in Australia in the NRL. So that may have an effect. But the top Super League professionals, I still think they've got what it takes to win big this year. Looking at the stats, they've scored the most points, they've conceded the least, they've scored the most tries, most metres, most tackle busts, most clean breaks. Is there anything this side cannot do? They came close last year, but they've been so much better this year, this time round. 
We saw our Saints brushed apart Wigan last week with ease. And I don't think it'll be Wigan's year this year because they've lost eight times to playoff contenders. And whilst they've been on a big winning run, they've not really played top sides. And when they did, they got torn apart by St. Helens. Looking at those sides just outside the playoffs, Salford, they could sneak into the top five. They've got Jackson Hastings, who's joined top of the Man of Steel charts. And then they've got Nile Levels, who is one of the top league's try scorers. So Salford have always got a chance, but while they've shown they might be a contender in some weeks, they've they've also shown they might be a contender for going down in other weeks. So what does that say for St. Helens' chance? In second, it's Warrington Wolves. Saints have nullified Warrington's main weapon, Blake Austin, and when Austin is having an off game, and when he's nullified, they don't look half the side that they are when they're on top form, and Saints, I've said it before, they have so many stars this year. Don't matter if one's having an off day or one's injured. So for me, it's a Saints walkover. Although that might look rather silly come October. But if it is the case that they do get the treble, what does that make of the state of the league? Yeah, we've got a competitive league. It's supposed to be the most competitive league ever. But one is walking the league. So is it that those outside of first, they're just not up to it? They're poor, poorer quality than previous years. And if that's the case, are, are Saints good? Or is it just that the rivals are not up to the job like they have been in previous seasons? What are your thoughts? Let me know. And by the way, if you want, you can actually phone into this podcast. There's, I think there's a link in the description of every podcast episode to uh, send in a voice message. So if you've got a particular point you want to make or you want to rant, you can send one in and we might feature it on the podcast, so have a look at that. Also, Blake Austin has been called up to the England Elite Performance Squad. The Warrington player, Blake Austin, he tops the Man of Steel awards, is a top try scorer in Super League this year, so good decision, bad decision. There's been a bit of criticism from quite a number of fans because Blake Austin is Australian-born. I personally don't have a problem with the fact that he's been introduced into the England squad because it now means he's committing to England and he's turning his back on Australia. He qualifies for his grandmother, who were born in Middlesex. But I do understand the reasons why people are not quite happy about his introduction because, let's be honest, if he were good enough for Australia, I think there's no doubt he'd be playing for them. He's 28 now and... He probably won't have a shot at international rugby with Australia, so he's not—he's probably not playing out of pride and not because of the honour to serve your country on the top stage. He's probably doing it to further his career, and I don't think he'd deny that. He probably wants to be known not just for performing domestically, but internationally as well. Because when we're talking about the great players, we always say, oh yeah, he did, he did it quite for his club, but... He never quite made it though on the on the world stage, but there might just be a bit of retribution in it as well because he might be able to prove Australia that they were wrong and not to consider him and prove that he he's, he is one of the best in rugby league. So in terms of the honour and playing for your country out of pride and things like that, I understand why some people think he shouldn't be included. I do think he is doing it for his own career. 
but I think that'll work in England's favour as well. You can't really question his commitment. He's turning his back on Australia. He won't be playing for them if he goes with England now. He's one of the top Super League players, probably the best in his position ahead of all the English alternatives or great British alternatives. So I think he'll benefit the side greatly. Whilst he may only be playing for England because Australia might not want it and he's entering the final stages of his career, his introduction, it'll make sense for him and it'll make sense for England. So, yeah, it may be preferable if we could choose an Englishman, but I don't think that I don't think we have that luxury because he's by far the best at what he does, and I welcome his introduction. Lastly, in Super League this weekend, there's three fixtures in particular I want to highlight. Those fixtures are Hull KRV Huddersfield, London v St Helens, and Castleford v Warrington. And I'm highlighting these because... It'll be the third time these two sides have met in the league. And it's part of the Super League's loop fixtures and Magic Weekend, etc, etc. I think the part of it is down to trying to maximise revenue of the sales, of ticket sales. But by playing the same fixtures in the season, it sort of puts off people from buying those tickets. So it's slightly contradictory and it sort of works in the detriment to the clubs. And I've said it often that too many similar fixtures get played in Super League. And and it came up again last week with Sky not televising the Saints v Wigan match. I just think they should do away with loot fixtures, to be honest. And my idea would be to expand the league. Maybe have two extra sides from the Championship, because you can't say that those sides are not up to it. You look at London. Although, if not, they could even have another magic weekend, perhaps. That would surely satisfy the income from the ticket sales and it would help fans stay interested rather than get tired of similar fixtures. But I think they would have to be spread out evenly across the season so there's enough space between the Easter period and then the Magic Weekend and then potentially another. Anyway, that's just my idea. What do you reckon? Anyway, that's it for this week. I'll have another edition for you next week. Like and share the podcast and give us a rating if you enjoyed it. See you next week.